Amen. Good morning again, church. I want you to take your Bible and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. If you're new to the Bible, basically you'll go to the middle, and if you come to about Proverbs or Psalms, just move forward through Psalms and Proverbs into Ecclesiastes. We're going to read through chapter 4 in just a moment. Again, if you're new to the Bible, the big numbers on the page are the chapter numbers, and the small numbers are verse numbers. I'll be reading all the way through verse 16, so the entirety of chapter 4. This is a passage that doesn't ever mention God, which is surprising. This is the Bible, after all. It's a book about God. So why isn't God mentioned? Well, as with every other passage, we know that even if God isn't mentioned by name, his nature isn't described in some way, his works aren't described in some way, we know that we could say he's lurking in the shadows of this passage, as he is in every other passage. And so Solomon seems to be writing this passage with implicit truth about God in the back of his mind. And let's read this passage, asking ourselves, what does this actually say about God as we read Ecclesiastes chapter 4? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, but there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born, or who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil. and His eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken." Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity." striving after wind. Back in January, a United States senator issued a statement after the U.S. State Department officially declared that the Chinese Communist Party is committing genocide against the Uyghur ethnic minority. Over the last several years, countless Uyghurs have been raped and tortured, apparently because of their religious beliefs. And it's sickening for us to contemplate what's happening in northwest China 
and the fact that people have just ignored it. The Chinese government continues to lie about it, ignore it, suppress it. The only way we know about what's happening there is because people escape and then live to tell about it. What's especially appalling, though, is when we realize that that statement that the U.S. State Department rightfully publicized this past January is addressing one evil in one place in one slice of human history. This isn't talking about all the evil that's happened in other countries or is happening in other countries or is happening in our own town It's not talking about sex slavery or any other kind of slavery. It's not talking about abortion or any other kind of cultural evil. It's talking about one kind of sin in one place at one time. And when Solomon considers that, it turns his stomach. Good night. Is it even worth living if all of this garbage is going on around the world? I'm sure you feel this way at times. The evil in a fallen world is overwhelming, discouraging, sending us into deep depression if we allow these kinds of things to settle into our minds long enough. Maybe you feel this way every time you try to find a movie that you and your family can enjoy with a clear conscience. Or when you walk into a bookstore fully intending to keep your mind pure and all around you you see the garbage, the perversity that our society shoves down our throats just when we walk into a bookstore. Again, that's one small way of highlighting this. When you read or listen to the news and realize that they're only talking about the big stories in the world. They're not talking most of the time about all the domestic abuse that goes on in homes around this country and around the world. We don't talk too much about child labor anymore that goes on in in sweatshops around the world, especially in Southeast Asia. So how should we respond to these evils? What is a right response to this kind of discouragement that weighs on us when we contemplate what's going on around the world today and has been going on for thousands and thousands of years? The basic response that Solomon seems to suggest is to believe a certain truth about God. Again, he doesn't mention God, but it seems in the background of his mind, he has a certain truth about God that he's contemplating. And it seems to be this, that God is the one who rights all wrongs. He's the one who actually can and will act. We pray. We as Christians seek to take action where we can. But we admit that ultimately we cannot solve the problems of a post-Genesis 3 world. In other words, a world that is filled with sin and sorrow because of what happened in the Garden of Eden. Solomon mentions four evils in this chapter. Four evils of life after Genesis 3. Those evils are oppression, selfish ambition, isolation, and the reality that you will have a fleeting legacy. So let's look at these four evils of life under the sun, is what Solomon, the phrase Solomon uses over and over again, just saying life in a fallen world, life on this planet. And to this problem of oppression, we are urged to respond to oppression with humble lament. This is in verses 1 through 3. 
Solomon's observing life, and he sees the oppressions that are done under the sun. He, he looks at the people who are sitting there in tears, and no one hears them. There's no one there to wipe those tears. On the other side, there are people who are powerful, he says. They have everything they need. But for these people who are being oppressed, all they have are their tears and the continuation of the evil against them. To oppress someone, the homemade definition, so don't look it up online, you'll find a better definition, but to oppress someone is to use power or position to inflict harm on others. So someone's in a power, position of power. In other words, a position to help people, and they use that power to suppress people, to push them down, to make their lives miserable, because those people are the ones with the power, and they're the ones with the friends. And when Solomon contemplates this evil, I just think verse 3 is a remarkable statement. He says, you know, is it better to be alive? Who's most fortunate? Those who are alive or those who are dead? And in verse 3, actually, here's the real truth, he says. It's better to not even be born yet because you haven't had to look at the garbage that the rest of us have to look at every day. It's a pretty powerful statement. Have you ever said to yourself, I wish I had never been born. The only time I can remember saying that myself, as I recall, was probably about 11, and I was making my mom a birthday cake. She and my dad were on a date. It would have been January 10th, let's say 1995, somewhere around there. And uh, I was baking a cake for my mom's birthday, like just getting into my baking skills department. And uh, from a cake mix, as you would expect, I made a 9 by 13 cake. And I baked it, and I let it cool a little bit. Then I tried to flip it upside down <laughs> because I had seen my mom flip cakes upside down, probably in more like a springform pan instead of a 9 by 13 pan. And the whole cake just crumbled. And I just burst into tears. And my sister walked into the room. My older sister very kindly walked in and said, what's going on? And I showed her, and she goes, oh, well, you're not supposed to flip a 9 by 13 cake. Well, I didn't know that. Again, it's the first cake I've ever made. And I cried into my sister's arms. I wish I had never been born. All because my cake crumbled. Well, the ways I'm oppressed, I tell you. But I guess what I'm saying is we probably have all had a similar sentiment at some point in our lives. Boy, life is so bad, I just wish I were not even here. And here Solomon is saying that because the evils all around him are so bad. So what is our response? He actually doesn't tell us, get out there and pick it for justice. Get out there and speak truth to power. Do other passages speak into this kind of a problem? Absolutely. And so those are different sermons. That's what I would say. Is, you know, if you want to hear how Christians should respond to this, keep reading your Bible, keep reading from beginning to end, and keep coming here and listening to us preach through the whole Bible at some point. But this passage really just urges you to lament, to feel deep seated sorrow over the problems that people have to live with, that you have to live with, that your loved ones have to live with. Maybe there's someone here that when you hear about oppression, you don't need to wonder what it's like because you have the scars to show what it looks like to live in an oppressive environment. But what I would say to you is that Jesus knows your oppression. He was himself cruelly oppressed and abused on the cross for you. 
It's also possible, I hope not, it's also possible we have someone in our midst who is oppressing other people. Maybe you're oppressing your spouse or your children or your employees. And what I would say to you is you need to repent. You need to turn from that evil. and Turn in faith to Christ himself who can wash away your sin of oppression. Jesus paid for the ways you sin against others, even if no one else would categorize it as actual oppression. And those sins require judgment. Jesus bore that judgment for you. So Solomon urges us to respond to this problem of oppression, this evil done in the world against other people with humble lament. In verses 4 through 6, he describes the problem of selfish ambition. The problem of seeing people trying to get one leg up over somebody else, over other people. And he urges us to respond to selfish ambition with grateful contentment. To have a heart that says, thank you to God, rather than I'm going to get my way if it's the last thing that I do. And this is certainly not the only place in the Bible where this attitude is described, this problem is described, or its solution is described. He says in verse 4, Solomon says in verse 4, I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. That's probably a little bit of a hyperbolic statement, but just a way to say our hearts at least have the seeds in them of wanting to be the best at what we do and to make other people appreciate what we do by the way we do it. There's no athlete who says, you know, I hope I'm the third string quarterback. They all want to be the best. And so they all get up early and they all go to weight rooms and they all practice and practice and practice all summer long. So when they get to camp in July or so, they can compete to be the first quarterback. Because no one's going to be satisfied not playing all season. Maybe not even dressing for the game because they're not good enough. And so we can all understand this, this drive to be the best at what we do. We all have these seeds in our hearts, I think, of wanting to be recognized for the way that we work. But Solomon says, this is vanity. To pursue this kind of life is vanity. To pursue this kind of achievement and accomplishment is a striving after wind. It's chasing after the wind. You're never actually going to catch it. You're never actually going to be satisfied. So stop trying And in verses 5 through 6, he gives two alternatives to this, you know, dog-eat-dog mentality. One is, give up. Don't even try working. And the other is, have a life of contentment. So let's look at these two alternatives. Verse 5 says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Kind of disgusting. We'll come back to that in just a second. But this idea of folding your hands comes from uh, Proverbs chapter 6. He says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. You lie there with your hands folded, and you're going to have nothing. So one alternative to not 
getting into this super competitive environment is to just say, you know, I'm not going to work. I'm just going to lay back, let other people do everything for me and serve me well, and I'll be fine. And that is not a good alternative. This is not going to help you. In fact, it's going to destroy you. That's what he means when he uses this metaphor of eating your own flesh. I mean, he's describing self-cannibalization here, which is disgusting again, but he's basically saying you have nothing else to eat, so of course you're just going to start gnawing at your hands. Better than dying. Well, it's disgusting. But it's disgusting as well to just lay back and say, well, everybody can do everything for me. No, that is not a biblical alternative. What's a better alternative? How about a handful of quietness? What's he describing here? Yesterday we were at a park and my kids were sitting on one of those, like a spinny thing, that's what I call them, very technical term, and so you can Google that if you want. So basically I'm spinning my kids and one of them was holding a bag of pretzels on this spinny toy and accidentally let go of the bag of pretzels. So now we have this humongous pile of pretzels on the side of this spinny thing. And uh, so I had them all get off. I said, okay, let's start picking up the pretzels. You can get a decent handful of pretzels with one hand. But you can get a whole lot more pretzels if you come up underneath them and scoop them up with both hands. And that's what Solomon is describing here is you can have one handful or you can have both. And what he's saying is in comparison to this I've got to have it all mentality, it's actually better just to have one. Because in one hand you have what you need, but in the other hand you have a quiet heart quiet life, a peaceful spirit, while everyone else is destroying each other to get to the top. Steve Jobs was uh, actually somewhat of a jerk in his day. I'll read a little portion from his biography, which I've been enjoying as I fall asleep the last few weeks. Um, this, this part just struck me because hey, you look at him, decent looking guy, nice uh, he was a nice guy. No, he really wasn't. There was one guy who worked with him named Daniel Kotke, who had been friends with him for decades. And now he's working with Steve Jobs, getting Apple off the ground. He was there when Apple was just a company in a garage. And here he is. They're about to make Apple go public, basically by, by it going public in 1980. 300 people became millionaires, by the way, that the stock sold. So, uh, so expensively, I guess is the way to say that. Maybe not. <laughs> Don't correct me if this is not. Um, but basically, Steve Jobs wouldn't let this guy named Daniel Kotke have any stocks. And other people in the company are saying, come on, Steve, just give him a couple at least. Just let him in on the prize a little bit for all his work. And Steve just kept saying no. And so this one guy walked into Steve Jobs' office and said, we have to do something for your buddy Daniel. And he suggested they each give him some of their own options. Whatever you give him, I'll match it, said Holt. Replied Jobs, okay, I'll give him zero. Eventually other people kind of pitched in, but what did, say, five stock shares benefit Steve Jobs compared to all else that he was going to make? What I'm saying is Steve Jobs was going for the two hands full. I want it all for myself. Solomon saying, that is no way to live. That's a miserable way to live. Again, as I said previously, Solomon is being hyperbolic here. He's overstating his case, but not by a lot. 
We know what it is to have a desire to be promoted, to have a higher pay threshold, to get better benefits, to be more widely respected. I have a relative who works at an Amazon warehouse in Tennessee, and when I asked her if she was willing to be promoted, if they asked her, she said, absolutely not. When people get in power here, they become jerks when you thought they were your friends. This is what he's describing here. Oh, forget being nice to you. I'm not going to be your friend. I'm your boss now. So I'm going to take both hands for myself and run for it. And so as a result, some people are so devoted to their jobs, it's basically like they're married to their jobs because they want two hands full rather than being content with one handful. There's a song by Harry Chapin, it's a couple decades old at least, called Cats in the Cradle. And in the song he describes... Being so occupied with his job and with his desires that he has a child but never really knows his child. And the child says, well, Dad, I'm going to be just like you when I grow up. And eventually the child does become just like him in the sense that when he's old, he's not able to spend time with his family. He's not able to go back and say thanks, Dad, and spend time with him and let him spend time with his grandchildren. I have a friend who... I was talking to a couple weeks ago who was making very good money working at FedEx in South Carolina who's working 80 hours a week. And he's been doing this for years. So yeah, he has lots of money now. So much that he could quit his job. But the reason he quit his job was because he blinked and his son was, went, went from being 10 to being 14. And he has five other kids or four other kids. And he's realizing, I'm throwing my life away in pursuit of the American dream so I can provide for my family generously but in doing so, I don't even know my family. And my friend who died a few weeks ago, I told you about, uh, he died two weeks ago yesterday, in his funeral program, he wrote a, a little testimony. It says, from Sam, the most important lesson I ever learned. And he writes in here, like so many other people, my life was filled with ambition to do great things and to be important. I invested a great deal of time trying, <clears throat> of time trying to make a name for myself and to not look stupid. I was largely successful in my pursuits, but my life was filled with stress and anxiety trying to perform. Perhaps you can relate. Quite late in my short life, he died when he was 38, I learned that you can be free from the rat race of needing to prove yourself or to impress others. So in the rest of this, he basically gives his testimony of salvation. And and he's a pastor acknowledging the human propensity to want to be the best at what you do and be recognized for it. And what Solomon would say is, respond to this selfish ambition around you by having a handful of quietness, by having a handful of quiet contentment in your life. That's why Paul can write in Philippians 4, I've learned to be content in whatever state I am. I can be poor or I could be rich, but whatever I have is what God has intended for me to have right now, and I can be content with that. And so perhaps you need to repent today of your own desire to get a leg up, to have better, a better reputation, to make a name for yourself. Humbly trust God to take care of that. Humbly trust God to take care of you in general. Again, don't throw your, your job away and say, you know, I'll be fine. I'll just fold my hands and wait for somebody to feed me. No, you're going to self-destruct doing that. But he says in verse 5, but it's better to have one handful than to go all in and have both handfuls, but in doing so, 
throw it all away by striving after the wind. At the cross, Jesus set aside ambition and committed himself to God's care. And we should do the same by responding to this evil of selfish ambition with grateful contentment. The third problem that Solomon describes in this passage is in verses 7 through 12. And here he describes the problem of isolation, and he calls you to respond to isolation by pursuing community. Working hard when you have no one to give what you earn is no way to live. Have you ever known someone who's like this Spartan in what he owns, and he has an empty apartment to come home to every night after working 12 or 14 hour or 16 hour shifts, all so he can get up and do it again the next day. Maybe he has a huge bank account, but he has no one to enjoy life with. His friends have long forgotten him. His family has felt betrayed by him for years or decades. Then when he dies, no one even give what he earned to. That's what Solomon's describing here. And he says, that is miserable. It says in verse 7, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, not a son, not a brother, in other words, no family members, if there's no end to all his toil, he keeps going back to the well and saying, well, maybe this will satisfy me. There's no end to all his toil. There's always going to be more work to do. His eyes are never satisfied with riches. That comes from the Proverbs as well. Because he's never satisfied, because there's always so much more work to do, he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? In other words, I can't even enjoy my life. I can't even take a day off to go to a Cubs game because I'm so committed to getting one more step ahead. And it's miserable when you're living this kind of life, he says. Solomon says this is vanity. It's meaningless. It's an enigma. And it's an unhappy business. As a result, people live these lives that are filled with loneliness. Ben Sass, a U.S. senator, writes in a book called Them, Why We Hate Each Other and How to Heal. He has a chapter about loneliness. He calls it our loneliness epidemic. And he writes here that through various uh, brain imaging and so forth, he says that we can now know the the results of living lonely lives. It comes as no surprise, he says, that lonely people get sick more often, take longer to recover from illness, and are at higher risk of heart attacks. It turns out that chronically lonely individuals are more prone to Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Studies suggest that one lonely day exacts roughly the same toll on the body as smoking an entire pack of cigarettes. Among epidemiologists, psychiatrists, public health officials, and social scientists, there's a growing consensus that the number one health crisis in America right now is not cancer, not obesity, and not heart disease. It's loneliness. Not having friends kills you, literally. That's what Ben Sass is saying here. That's what scientists are saying based on their research. And that's what Solomon is saying. You need people around you. And so he contrasts this problem of having this guy who's working really hard, making all the money, but having no one to go home to. And he contrasts that with somebody who's content, who's surrounded by friends. He says That's the path to choose. That's the life to live. That's the God-honoring life. And so you have options as an individual. You can pull away from people or you can move toward people. And Solomon says, move toward people. Live in community 
rather than in isolation. It's bad for you physically and spiritually and emotionally. I'm not talking about living alone, whether it's because you, your spouse died or it's because it's before you've been married or because you've never been married, whatever that situation is. He's not, he's not saying you need to get married. He's saying you need to have friends. That's what he's saying. You need to have people who know you. Make it a habit to interact with and be open with other people, particularly other Christians. This passage tells you it is a gift to have friends, even just a friend, someone who knows you. Perhaps you're surrounded by friends yourself, but you, as you look around your circle of acquaintances or even look around the church, you see someone who doesn't have a lot of friends. That is a golden opportunity to move toward that person and surround them with love and care and compassion and friendship. Yesterday, a man was mauled by a bear in Yellowstone National Park. And my understanding is he survived and was able to be transported to a hospital. But Clarissa told me, she's done a lot more research on this than I ever have, told me that people are far more likely to be ignored by bears if they're with even just one other person. Way better if you're with two, but even if you're with one other, something like only 9% of bear attacks happen when there's more than two people. Bears just leave you alone if you're with other people. And so Clarissa wisely said, if you ever go out with, go out to go to a place where bears are, take someone with you, and as she wisely quipped, make sure it's someone who's slower than you are. So that's my, my wife's wisdom. She's a charmer. We need other people in our lives. Verse 11 here says, If two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And this is not a reference to sexuality, to the act of sex. It's about surviving a cold night. It's about being out in the middle of nowhere. Maybe you have a blanket, so maybe you'll be okay. But you know when you're really going to be okay is that there's somebody else whose body heat can keep you warm. In 1889, a terrible blizzard moved into the Dakotas and Iowa and Nebraska. Hundreds of people died because of it, many of them children because it was late in the afternoon and they were walking home from school. It had been a relatively warm day and all of a sudden the, the air temperature starts dropping 18 degrees in three minutes. Before you know it, you have children who are frozen up against their door handle of their home. You have people who are lost out in the middle of nowhere simply because they were out trying to get their cow before the storm moved in. But you know who survived? Those who hid themselves in hay bales with someone else, and ideally with many other people, so that their body heat could keep them alive until they could be found days later. You need people in your life. There is strength in numbers. This is especially the case spiritually. Forget bears, forget blizzards. You need people spiritually speaking truth into your life. We need each other for ministry. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, you can't say, look, I'm the head, I don't, or you know, I'm the eye, I don't need the hand. Or I'm the foot, I don't need the toe. No, you are all connected. We need each other for ministry. We need each other for mission. How discouraging it would be to say, all right, you go evangelize this whole neighborhood. Be like, can I please have some other people with me? We need each other to faithfully evangelize. And we need each other for the sake of pursuing holiness. Did you know 
that you have sin that you don't know about, but that other people probably do, if they know you well enough, you need people to help you pursue God, pursue holiness. You need people to talk when you're discouraged or lonely or tempted or suffering. Sometimes there are no words, but a hug says what you need to say. You need somebody to give you that hug. You need to give that hug to someone else. Rather than isolating yourself, pursue others, pursue community. At the cross, Jesus himself was abandoned so you could be embraced. Praise him for his moving toward you in humility. and Now move toward others as well. In verses 13 through 16, the fourth evil, we could say, the fourth problem of life that Solomon describes is this problem of a fleeting legacy. You have somebody who's better than the person before him, but he's going to die too. Verse 13 says, there's a poor and wise youth who comes to take the place. This is essentially what's happening here. He takes the place of an old and foolish king who doesn't know how to listen to anybody anymore. Now you have somebody who comes in who actually knows how to listen to people, actually knows how to love other people and lead other people well. And what you read in this passage is everybody likes him. They're happy to let him lead them. Then he dies. 100 years later, No one even knows he was there. Who can tell me anything about Grover Cleveland besides the fact that he was president twice? Who can tell us anything about his policy or whether people liked him, whether he had good approval ratings? You know where he's buried? In Princeton, New Jersey. And his gravestone is average. It has lots of ugly beads on it last time I was in Princeton. But it was an average gravestone, and he was president twice. He's not even the most famous person in his own cemetery. Aaron Burr and Jonathan Edwards are buried hundreds of feet away from him. And he was president twice. You can live a very successful life. You can be well-liked. Or you can be hated. Either way, you're going to be forgotten. And Solomon says, this is an evil of life. This is terrible. We want people to love us when we're alive and then really cry a lot when we're not. Maybe that'll happen for a little while. But if you go to an average cemetery, some of the gravestones you can't even read. And each one of those was paid for by a loving family or loving friends who missed that person. But probably now, you know, if you go to the St. John's Lutheran Cemetery down the road, many of those gravestones are so old they're hard to read. No one even knew those people were there. Some of the gravestones are probably broken or marred, knocked over. You have a fleeting legacy. How should we respond to that? I think Solomon would tell us, respond to this problem with humility. Grateful humility. Yes, I'm going to die. Yes, I'm going to be forgotten. But I have this life to live for the glory of God. So I'm going to give it everything I have today, not so I can get ahead or be remembered but so I can praise God with my life. My friend at his funeral, they played a video that he had made of him talking to his sister. You know, probably a FaceTime video or something like that. And, and in this video, he, he, made, he had this line. He said, I know I won't miss a single day the Lord intended for me. 
In other words, he wasn't afraid to die. He wasn't afraid, what if I die on Friday instead of Saturday? I need to have that extra day. No, he was ready to die. And what he was saying was, I know the Lord planned the day I was born. And I know the Lord planned the day I'm going to die. And every day in between there is what God has given me as a gift. And I can give it back to him as a gift by serving other people, fruitfully using every day I have. And then I can be content to die. Because I know that the problem isn't that, I, that my name needs to go forward. The glory is that God's name will go forward, that his fame will endure forever, not my own. So maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. We're thrilled that you're here if that's the case. I think you can probably understand, we can all relate to this desire to want to be remembered. What Solomon's saying is just the cold, hard fact that you're not going to be, but that's not a problem if you're wrapped up in Christ, if your life is designed and devoted to living for Jesus. So if you're not a Christian, what we would urge you to do is to contemplate what is the best way to make use of my life? And what Paul would say, what Solomon would say, what David would say, what Peter would say, what everyone in the Bible would say is, live your life for the glory of God. That's how you make the most of your life. Not seeking to make a reputation for yourself. Philippians 2 says that Christ took the form of a servant, being made as a man, being made in the likeness of men. He was willing to forego his reputation for the good of every one of us. And what this passage is urging you to do is hold your life in humility, grateful humility, yes. Say thank you, Lord, for every day you have, but it's not a problem that your legacy is going to be forgotten. So from this passage, to answer the question that we really gather from verse two, I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Who's the most fortunate person? The dead? The alive? Or the person who's not even born yet? Here's the answer. When you read this passage in light of the whole Bible, the person who's most fortunate is the person who trusts God to judge oppressors rather than feeling like you are responsible to avenge your own losses. The person who's most fortunate is the person who works diligently but contentedly one handful rather than two. The person who surrounds himself with friends who fear God, that's the most fortunate person. And the person who humbly recognizes that his fame won't last forever, but God's fame will. He's the one we live for, even in the midst of all these evils of life. Let's pray. Lord, we are truly blessed by holding your word and receiving this wisdom from you, the God of perfect wisdom. We pray that you would cause it to sink into our very spiritual bones. That we would think your thoughts after you. That we would take your perspective on life and not be devoted to making a name for ourselves, but making your name glorious in the eyes of the watching world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.